Hello everyone and welcome to Philosophy Rekindled with our focus book, the 1920 published version of Tertia Morganum by P.D. Ospensky. Today we're discussing Chapter 4 and we will be covering this chapter in two parts over separate podcasts. This is Part 2. You will find the audio version of the full chapter as an additional audio to this podcast and you'll also find additional information on our website, philosophyrekindled.com. Today, my panel members are Peter Lancet, hypnotherapist, author and classic scholar, and Sue Flanagan, doctor, businesswoman and grandmother. And I'm Alice Flanagan, fiction author and podcaster by night, computer programmer and risk advisor by day. Thanks so much for listening, and thanks Pete and Sue for joining me. Hello. Hello. Second part of Chapter 4, and uh, there's quite a lot in this chapter, and uh, from our discussion at the beginning, um, we've all decided that really, at the end of the day, what we're what Aspensky is getting at is that time is the fourth dimension of space. But how do we get there? That's what we're going to discuss. So, would you agree, Pete? No. Go on. <laughs> Tell me why. No, I'm I'm being a bit facetious, but not but only a little bit. How is it? A, um, how can we use the term space when we only understand space uh, in in three dimensions? The implication of the statement you just made is that we we all agreed that time is a, an attribute of three dimensional space. I think we should make it clear that that's not what we're saying. Mm-hmm. Yep. When I'm, I'm not going to dwell on that. Okay. It's, it is the problem with how do you describe it. And, and we're going to come to that problem now as we talk about this. It, get, it gets ever more convoluted. But let's start from the beginning. He says that we're all agreed that the past is the past. It's happened. It's all over Red Rover. And the, the present is whatever the present is. But, you know, there's, there's not much uh, discussion around that. The discussion comes in with what is the future. And he talks about two theories of the future. Uh, the first one being the preordained future. Everything is already decided and there's nothing you can do, just buckle up and enjoy the ride. And the other one is the free future where everything that happens now has is, a, is as a consequence of something that has happened in the past. So what you do now determines your future. So he talks about those two different theories of future and then he then he comes back to say that these views are equally untrue and true because they're true in the sense that everything is preordained as to what you do it's already preordained but it can be changed in the moment but he said then he talks about uh the difference being is when consciousness enters into the equation, that's when things get interesting. So that probably doesn't make a lot of sense, and I want to discuss that with you guys as to what your, what your thoughts are as to what he's saying about two theories of future and where he melds the two to say what his theory of the future is. So, Pete, do you want to...? Well, he only, he only actually says that the... the, 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 the... The idea that we don't have um, a preordained future. In other words, the two terms that you typically use are fatalism, which a lot of cultures actually believe in, particularly in the Middle East. This idea that what shall be shall be, que sera sera, and that it's all preordained and, and there is no point in you worrying or stressing about anything because what will be will be. 
and then this other one of free will. So free will and determinism are the, t the technical terms uh, that, that you often see used in philosophical discussions. However, Bispensky says that the real issue is that the only way that we can come away from the idea of the preordained or determinism is when consciousness comes in from the side and changes the present in a way that cannot be predicted. And then it becomes an act of will that changes whichever path into the future that we take. If that wasn't the case, and I can give an analogy for this, if that wasn't the case, there would be no gambling industry because you could you could actually work out mathematically what is going to happen in in the future by just taking stock of the past. But there are a lot of imponderables. You you know, and what what an idea that comes from somebody's consciousness, in other words, something intangible, an idea that comes into somebody's mind and says, you know what, I'm going to do X or I'm going to do Y, and that changes. The, the future that you'd predicted was going to happen. It only takes a jockey on the back of a horse to have an off day or, or be thinking about a problem that he's had and he doesn't ride the horse to the best of his ability and boom, the odds on favourite comes third. You know, you've done all the predictions, you've done everything. We wouldn't have a gambling industry if we couldn't have um, what we believe to be unpredictability. And this is where the idea, this idea of the sideways consciousness coming in from the side to throw out all of your predictions based on past performance and past events comes in. Bilispinski also talks about, doesn't he, the, the concept that if you were up on the mountain having a look, you could see the trains about to collide and you could have the overview. And so that fourth dimension will give you the overview of all potential uh, interactions. And so it really, he does come back to the concept, I, I think he comes back to the concept that with our consciousness, we navigate through the third dimension. But again, we have not defined where, where, where consciousness sits and where thought sits. And I don't know that there's a, uh, an easy way to discuss this chapter because it's, it has so much in it, doesn't it? That is, um, seems imponderable. But again, it's the intersections of, of different planes. It's, three-dimensional planes, and I just wonder if we don't all have our own three-dimensional plane that intersects and we are moving it through that fourth dimension. And that's what you know, the time is, uh, that, that's that concept that we have a consciousness that says, I want to head here, I want to head there, amongst all those potential potential possibilities that exist on, that, on the fourth-dimensional plane, hmm. whatever that fourth-dimensional plane is. Well, I think what... You were saying, Pete, makes sense in when we're thinking about this because if the future was preordained, as you say, we wouldn't have any problem knowing what's going to happen. We'd know the day we were going to die. We'd know how we were going to die. We'd know everything, but we don't, and things well, happen. We'd, we'd potentially be able to work it out. We wouldn't necessarily know it innately, but we would be able to work it out. That's the whole point. Yes, because what he says is that... There's a cause and then there's an effect and we see the effect. So something something does something, you know, you kick a ball, it moves, that sort of um, concept. But then uh, something else comes in, our consciousness comes in and I'm, I'm not 100% sure what he's saying but I almost equate it to the quantum quantum theory that says if we're looking at a particle or a wave, you know, whatever, light is a particle or a wave it depends on 
how we observe it and it changes based on the on the observer and I, and I wonder if that's similar you know our consciousness is the observer well that's what we are doing isn't it we 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 are always without a shadow of a doubt trying to make change in our third dimensional environment virtually every moment of every day we are seeing what's happening even even when I lift my hand to make a hand gesture when I'm speaking, I'm trying to alter your perception of what I'm saying so that you will agree with me. Or I might be exasperated and listening to somebody else. We're always trying to, even down to the simplest level, we're, we're trying to affect change. We see where we are now. We see where we want to be. We have an idea of how to get to where we want to be. We then put that into action by use of our will. He uses that word in, in this to, to, to describe it so consciousness is the idea we are, we're sitting there in this in this moment we are making a judgment on what's happened in our past in our experience what we would like to happen next and we have an idea we then put the idea into action in other words we use our conscious will to make that happen and hope that and hope that it turns out the way we want to i tread on a sheet of ice and I really hope, and I, based on everything I've ever seen, I know that even if the ice breaks, there's only a few inches of water. And I'm hoping that I'm right, but I might be bloody wrong and I might sink down to the bottom of a 10-foot hole full of icy water. We're always, we're always make, doing things based on what we think is the, the, the most probable outcome based on our experience. However, anything can change that. We could suddenly have an idea that, hang on, this might be the one where it doesn't happen. I'd better walk around this icy lake. And suddenly we've changed the potential future. You could even do that in mid-step. In mid-step, the potential would be that you're going to put your foot down immediately where you are in front of you as you're walking. If the idea comes in, i.e. consciousness comes in from the side, which is the way that Espensky specifically um, says it, I then suddenly, whoa, take a step back. Now, somebody watching me would be absolutely justified in thinking that I was going to take that next step. If somebody was watching me through binoculars from the trees, watching me walk, they would think, based on the way that I've been walking, the way I've walked across other icy ponds on my journey across to wherever it is I'm going, that I am going to put my foot down on the ice this time, and they could put a bet on it, and they'd lose, because I've had the idea from, from nowhere, from consciousness, that hang on, this might be the deep pool and it might the ice might break. I'd better go around this one. I can literally change my mind. Mm. And that way we can't necessarily predict the future, is what Aspensky is trying to say with this idea of consciousness coming in and saying that it, it doesn't make it predictable. You can actually take that a stage further and say that we're saying that based on the idea that we don't have full and certain knowledge of everything. And we come into the butterfly effect here. So we can make our predictions about a horse race. What we don't know is that a butterfly has flapped its wings across the far side of the world, which has affected the air around those wings, and that's done this, and then the cause and effect and the knock-on is actually un <coughs> unknowable to us, so that we can't actually predict the future, and that it is all preordained, but not in a sense that we can have access to. That we, can, that we can actually predict it. It's this idea that there's so many imponderables, even in the physical world, that can affect the outcome of a particular event that it is not possible for, for us to know it. 
Um, so, yeah, in that sense, you could say that predetermined outcomes, that's very, very true. Um, however, how are we likely to be able to make use of that? We're not, are we? We can't know everything to that level, to that degree. It's not possible. But anyway. Here's a thought. I'll be with you in a second, Sue. Here's a thought. So say it was preordained and we think we have we think we have free will and we think that we can make decisions that change things up on you know, the spur of the moment. But just say that that too is preordained. So so that here here yeah, that's a, that's a, that's my point. But how can we know yeah. to that degree? How can we know to that degree the, the level of preordainment? Because the, because that's based on cause and effect. Mm-hmm. And what we'd have to know is all of the circumstances that came up to to what we would recognise as being a causal event. We can't know that. We have to know every moment, literally every infinitely small moment of every other person's life, of every animal's life, of every plant's life, of the motion of the stars, of sunbursts of energy that come flying up. We have to know everything that's ever happened in the universe to give, to give us... And we, well, even if it were possible, we don't have a conscious mind capable of actually being able to process that. Well, well I'm wondering, as Fensky says, that neither system... Is, is fully correct. And, I know, um, then he comes on and says that consciousness comes in sideways and makes so, change. Yes, because I just wonder if part of this isn't that if the fourth dimension has all potential possibilities there, then in that sense, no matter which path you go, it may be preordained. But consciousness allows us to weave and duck in and out and to change out of direction on a third dimensional plane. We just get to zigzag uh, with the consciousness and with our own with will. And so consciousness allows us to navigate and to change our path through the path of all potential options. And uh, But those options are always sitting in there. They're always sitting there in the fourth dimension, no matter which way we look at it. They were always able to be accessed, if so to speak. Well, just to give you the quote, this is what Aspensky says, in every given moment all the future of the world is predestined and is, ex- and is existing but is predestined conditionally, i.e. it will be such or another future according to the direction of events at a given moment unless there enters a new fact and the new fact can only enter from the side of consciousness and the will resulting from it. And I think that's what I that say. is like... Mm. Yeah, that's right. That's one sentence that I think says so much, but yet it's one sentence you could skip over quite quite easily. But I think what he's saying here is the will resulting from it. That you know your consciousness and the will resulting from it. That's that's the cha- the game changer. That's what is. That's what I think he's saying. I want to just move on. Everything else can be measured by physics. Yep. Everything else can be man- measured physically. What you can't do is take account of this idea of consciousness, which doesn't sit in the third dimension. It's a thought. It's an idea. It doesn't have space. It doesn't have a spatial element like the third dimension does, which is why in my world, thoughts, ideas, and dreams are of the fourth dimension because the connection is infinite, is, is instant and infinite and always there. So the connection between any two potential futures is always there. You can have an idea about anything. You can you can think yourself to be a billionaire right now. It's an idea. You have you have 
you have the connection between all things in the fourth dimension. You have to then, to make that happen in the third dimension, you have to have the force of your will using three-dimensional aspects to make that happen in your three-dimensional life. In your fourth-dimensional life, no problem. Billionaire. I can, I can think and imagine that, no problem. I have access to every possibility. Which is a good segue, because when we're talking about possibilities, if we're talking about being a billionaire, and you look at it and say, I'm not a billionaire, even though I can think that I'm a billionaire, um, because in the past, I didn't make those billions. But this is where Spensky talks about, you know, we think that the future is the only undetermined thing, but he talks about then saying that the past is also equally undetermined. The past has all the possibilities that could have been, like you could have made all those right decisions to become a billionaire just as easily as uh, you could have made the wrong decisions because all the possibilities are there and they still exist. That's... I think that's a really interesting concept that the past and the future are very similar, that they've got all the possibilities. They're still there. It's just whatever has landed that one point in time that, that you have selected, your consciousness is focused on. Um, but it doesn't mean the past is actually past. It still has all yeah. that potentiality, all that, all that, um, all the undetermined and equally all well, this is what he says, the past and the future are equally undetermined, equally exist in all their possibilities, and equally exist simultaneously with the present. I mean I think that's that's a great concept because it takes away the linear the past, present, future on all on one line. It starts to it starts to expand that to everything being possible all at the same time. The only place you can access the past, though, to make things change is in the fourth dimension, to make things change for you now. Yes, and that's... that's. Um, I was having a think about that. I was thinking, uh, yeah, using a bit of an analogy for myself, would it be like if you had a warehouse full of items and, you know, whatever it is, a warehouse full of things... And you walked in, it was in the dark, and you had a torch. And if you shone your torch, you would only see certain of those things, even though they're all there, all existing. So you might look at um, a row of pallets, and as you move your torch, you're seeing the pallet, the pallet change from this to that to something else. And then you could possibly think that the pallet is moving and changing into something else if you, you know. It's just an analogy, really. It's not a great one. But um, but in effect, everything is there all at the same time in the warehouse. It's only your torch that's showing. Um, I'm equating the torchlight to your consciousness, only seeing certain aspects of it, and then you're turning that into something that's moving in time. I moved my torch from one side of the room to the other, and it looked like those things were moving from past, present, future but they're actually sitting there in the one space, existing simultaneously. So what you see in the torchlight beam is like the slit yes. that Spensky talks about. So your torchlight beam is, uh, is representing that. We only see that tiny little bit where the light intersects the crates. That's all we see. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't mean it's not all there, all existing at the same time, but our consciousness only sees that that small part of it 
well, the conscious mind only can. It can only handle seven, give or take two, pieces of information at any one time. The unconscious mind is unlimited, which is where you'd have to come to, which, which he does later in his book. But the conscious mind, literally, you're seeing the world through that slit. You can only handle. I mean, we've known this yeah. since the 1950s. All the psychological experiments have proved this. This isn't hokey pokey. It's not even metaphysics. This is absolute guaranteed science at any one time. Which is why when you drive, you drive unconsciously. You could not, you could not process all of that information all at once. Which is why you have the experience of getting to a destination that you've driven to and thinking, do you know, I can't remember any of that drive because your conscious mind was elsewhere. Your unconscious mind did the driving. It did everything. Your unconscious mind can see all of these things. You can access it. But that, but that comes later on in the book. But that, that, that is a possibility. So what you can do is, instead of then looking through looking using a torch and only seeing what you see in the beam of that light, you find the wall and you flip the light switch on and suddenly you can see the contents of the entire warehouse. Uh, that's, that's what the unconscious mind can do. Yeah, which is, yeah, the expanding of the slit. Yep. Yeah, no, I don't want to go there because that, that's taking us off the, off the topic. But it's just that it was such a good analogy of the torch. I just wanted to, it just made me think of, of that. And, and, and the thing is with analogy too, we're still ana- putting an analogy in with a 3D. We put it in, yeah, in our 3D perspective. Yeah, I know. I was just going to say, can we just come to something that he does say in this, in this chapter about not confusing distance when we're talking about time? You know, he's, he's saying that real time, we, sh- we shouldn't be looking at, you know, it, it actually is the, the measure of distance between objects, but not spatial distance. It's not a three-dimensional distance. It's just literally um, the order in which things, the sequence in which things happen on one particular line of, of time in this fourth dimension, which means it's perpendicular to us. It means that these things are accessible simultaneously. The past, the present, and the future are accessible in the fourth dimension simultaneously. But we always put our third-dimensional view on our thoughts of it yeah well I, i've got the quote here in fact what you're saying by time oh, we great. mean the distance yes here we go by time we mean the distance separating events in the order of their succession and binding yeah. them in different holes this distance lies in a direction not contained in three-dimensional space therefore it is the new dimension of space now can i just come in there so he's saying come it's on. a spatial dimension yeah, but not three-dimensional space. This is where the confusion comes in in that, in that particular quote. The other thing I would say is that I, I found really fascinating with that is the idea of binding them into a different whole. In other words, in the fourth dimension of time where all events, past, present, and future exist, it's like having a box of Lego that you've just chucked on the floor and you can make anything out of these pieces. You can connect that piece with that piece. And then... Again, at the same time, though, you can connect that piece with another piece. Every potential outcome from every potential past event is available to you in that dimension, which is what he means by a whole. Which is our experience, that that whole is what we experience, yeah. Sorry, Sue, we're leaving you out. Oh, no, 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 I'm I'm listening and I'm agreeing with the conversation. It's just, it's a... uh, uh... It's it's always a difficult concepts. I mean, they're not so difficult. They're they he's introduced. Spencer introduces concepts that are so foreign. 
logically logical but foreign to what the way we normally think of things and uh and I was just thinking you know when when people are saying you know this your your, your potential past or whatever there was always a, a past that wasn't even part of your potential in there as well and uh you know because you we've we've focused down to this particular uh set of like, set of events but what if we had um started at a whole different place from the fourth dimension I don't know, another part of the universe or another different universe or whatever it may be. We, we just have these, we have this concept, don't we, that we, we're, we're so focused on our three-dimensional experience that we can't experience at the moment what we don't perceive as a potential. And that's what three dimensions does. It lowers down our perception of a potential future. And then we make decisions based on that. And I think this is when, when you say, it's you know, this is what we do, I think there's a certain... Uh, way of thinking that that some people think, and but there are different ways existing at the same time. You can you can see how thought is a fourth dimensional thing. Your brain can't think of something new. It can it's a computer. It can only process what it already knows, and it might be able to deduce something from that, but it can't come up with something original. And so that that thought that original thing must come from somewhere else. And I think when it comes down to there are ways of thinking in this world that aren't so rigid that do deal with fourth dimensional um, concepts. So it's, I think what Aspensky's doing here is he's taking the, the mass population's view of things, but he's building on that. Yeah, he is. Yeah. So he's not, he's not describing things. I mean, I'm sure Aspensky knew a lot more than this. I'm sure he dabbled in a lot more than this from other he didn't dabble he didn't dabble he was he was a real practice that's right so what i'm saying is yeah he, in my world he is he is one of the greats and he's not writing about it in this book yet i mean he does he does you know spoiler alert he does he does, he later. does later so i think what he's doing here is he's saying come along everybody this is how you're thinking as as you say sue this is how we think so let's start from that point and we're building. So he is putting the Lego blocks into a place. Uh, it's it's the way we're conditioned to think. We, we come out from school having been very well trained into a certain way of thinking. We learn from our parents a certain way of living. And that's the most, uh, I suppose, the common denominator is that. This is how the world thinks very three-dimensionally. Let's start and expand that. Let's start looking at the way we think and do something a little different, think a little differently. So when it talks about time and the concept that the past and the present and the future are all together, but it's the way we experience life depends on what part of the, the past and the present and the future we stick together in that Lego assembly is how we experience it. Okay. Um, I, I can give you um, an in it might be an interesting story to you, it might not. In hypnotherapy, and I am a hypnotherapist, I'm a hypnotist, and I deal with this on an almost daily basis, and I use this technique where I use the fourth dimension, the realm of thoughts and ideas, to change people's perception of themselves in the present and to um, make a positive change in their lives, the reason that they've come to me. Now, to give you an example, somebody that suffered some kind of trauma early in life 
and still has the residual effect. They're not letting go uh, of that problem. A technique that is commonly used in hypnotherapy is this idea of going back in time. And you go back and you see the younger you, you have an imaginary time machine. You pop down beside the younger you and you tell the younger you that, thank you for going through this for us, you say us. I just want to let you know that things do work out for us, that this doesn't matter, blah, blah, blah. Whatever the problem is, I mean, I'd have to use a specific problem, but you get the idea. And then you come back along the timeline and this, you, often you would suggest look down over the timeline of your life as you come back to now and watch these little lights popping up on your timeline. These are events in your past that, that are now turning out to be different than they did when you carried them through with all the trauma that you carried through with them. That trauma is now gone. You're now experiencing those events from a non-traumatized point of view. By the time they come back to now and they get out of the time machine under hypnosis and we bring them out of hypnosis, the change is right there. They're not the same person. Often that trauma has gone completely. Sometimes it'll take a few days to process in the unconscious mind. But basically, you've actually changed lots of points in their past timeline. In other words, those points still existed, as just as Ospensky says. And for them, those, those, those aspects of their life have changed so that they have now made a very quick transition from one state of being to a totally different state of being. And I see this happen every day. I use it I use it in lots of things from from stop smoking to trauma to, to, to loads of things and loads of therapists do. Um, you can see the documented results of that. There's loads of research into it. I'm going to suggest to you that in the fourth dimension, you think in the third dimension, well, you can't possibly have changed the past. I'm going to suggest to you exactly what Spensky is saying here, that those points still existed. And this is exactly what you're doing when you use your mind to change your past in your mind, in the fourth dimension, bring yourself into the present, and all, that change that you made in the past will have affected all of the events on your fourth dimensional timeline, which is all that exists now in the past. It doesn't exist in the third dimension. It's in the fourth dimension. And that, that has a cause and effect, a knock-on cause and effect of people you've met, the way that you reacted to other events, not traumatized anymore. You've reacted to them from a point of no trauma. And that makes you the person you wanted to be when you came to see the therapist in the first place. It's an amazing thing, but it, it really does demonstrate this idea of having access to the fourth dimension and to, and to the idea that the, the events in the past do still exist and they are available to us if we can only access them. Now, I'm accessing them from a point of view of consciousness. I'm directing consciousness in, in a client when I do that, and so do all hypnotherapists. So it does work. I'll just say, because um, I have experienced the hypnosis, I've also experienced other things where I've done the same thing with different techniques. But, yeah, you're right. What they're doing is changing because because even though physically X, Y, Z happened, it's how I perceived it and how I uh, processed it that's still... Well, it's only, it was only one. That's only one in the past. That was only one happening. Yeah. You, you, what I'm saying is what we do is we go back in the past and we access a totally different happening, happening, which then changes how we are in the present when we come back. That's exactly right. So in, in, in essence, your memory of it is, is or sorry, sorry, it's not even a memory. Your experience of it in the past has changed. Yeah. 
and hence, as you say, it's rippled it through. And I, I have, I have experienced that, and I have experienced that with things that have happened, and they weren't even big things. I'm not even talking, you know, trauma things. I'm talking about little things, little things that have been something that that yeah, a little trigger of some sort that there's now changed to something else, and suddenly I feel very differently about where it is in the. So that must. That's that's a great example of of those the past still being there, still accessible, still being able to to grab a different different Lego block to pull your analogy in earlier. Yeah, and it, and it and it does make a cha- it does lead to a change here in our third dimension. The person has changed by going through that process, so it has invented. You know, the cause and effect idea uh, is is demonstrated by it, and you've got a different outcome. You know, the person that comes and sits in the in my chair opposite where I'm sitting now um, is not the same when they walk out of my door than they were when they came in. I mean, that's what they pay me for, and that's what they get. They become a different person. I just, uh, just to say this one quick thing, because it's something that happened years ago. I had a fight at work with a guy. He was a new, new colleague, and we just had a, a clash right from the start. And he was really quite angry about something that I'd said, which I hadn't actually meant it the way it was said, but that's the way he took it, and we got off on the wrong foot. So I went home and I sat down in a you know, sort of a quiet moment and I went through in my mind that same experience and I felt all the emotion that came up, you know, I misunderstood, he didn't get what I meant, we got off on the wrong foot and felt all that. And then straight after I did that, because this is a technique that I've been told works and I'll tell you it does, I then went through the same experience how I would have liked it to have happened and felt all the emotion of us getting off on the right foot, having the right thing said, getting the whole thing and, and putting a different, I suppose, energy into the whole situation. Anyway, the next day I came into work and he walked up to me and, and and interacted with me from then on as if we had got off on the right foot and everything was fine. And what I think I did was I pulled out a different outcome from the past, but that had rippled through the whole energetic angst and calmed it down to something else. And it, and it was amazing. I love that. I love that because that's what I have. That's the experience I have almost daily with clients. And, and it's it's well known. And you've done what you did there was self hypnosis. You practiced the power of self hypnosis. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. And that's a great, great story to, to use to explain how that can happen. You know, that we, we can change our present by going into the fourth dimension. And the way we do that is by using ideas and imagination. Accessing and it. It does have that positive outcome here on the third dimension. It's brilliant. Great story. And that, and people are doing that all the time. If only other people would believe it. Because it's your belief that it will happen. Yeah. It makes it happen at that point. Yeah. That's why people don't try it. That's great. What a good well, story. It, it, it worked. It worked. Yeah. Sorry, Sue. We've, we've, <laughs> I've, I've, I've hogged the airtime. You go ahead with um. What, what are your thoughts? Not at all. Not at all. Now, I was just going to go back to the very beginning with Aspensky and he talks about things that we know. And one is consciousness and one is the world around us. And so what I think we're talking about at the moment is the fluidity of consciousness. Where it can, where it can flow. 
for us and where we can direct it and where we can receive from it because the one thing we do know, I think, is that we've not ever really been able to measure life or consciousness. We see it. We understand it. We know it exists. But, you know, if you look at the human body, fraction of a second before someone dies, it really doesn't, it's not, it is, it is, it is different, obviously, but it doesn't necessarily weigh differently. It doesn't, you know, there's an essence that's gone. And, uh, so, you know, our concept of memory is, uh, you know, in a, we, people will remember, Alice, you and I are two of seven and, uh, kids, and we will all remember the same circumstance in a different fashion. You know, there's many times we've discussed this through, and it's because our consciousness focused in on certain perceptions that we had. So the torch that we shine, it's, you know, from our consciousness is not, uh, it's also not fixed. It can, it, it, it can waver and, and so the, the experience that we have of any given, when we sign, we're walking through that, that, we're walking through your, um, your beautiful warehouse. What I'm going to say is that the torch has got a waver in it. And so if you were, if you and I were both standing looking at the same torch, like we're standing next to each other, I, my consciousness will still have a, will have a different experience, perhaps to your consciousness at the same time. And that is great. I mean, it just shows you that it's not, it's not a fixed thing. It's experiential. It's, um, you know, we, we, we experience different potentials. And, and part of what you're saying, Pete, about, you know, when you go back and you take people through hypnosis, you are, asking them to focus that, that that experience, as you say, you focus it separately, but it's it's an interaction. It's the interaction of consciousness on the dimension, which is a function that... that well, you're shining the torch on something different Well, in the past. You're changing what they shone the torch on. The, the, the torch itself is different, probably, possibly, for the two of us at the same time. Our consciousness is not... It may have the same source, but it's it's experiencing things differently. It is it is taking a separate viewpoint, it's a separate experience, probably more is the way I'm going to say that. And it's a little bit of a waffly concept in there, but um, it's not as hard and fast as say this book that I have in my hand. We say that is a concept that is you know it's it's a purple book and it's got dimensions and it's got length and depth and weight and whatever all those things. And we probably all would agree that that's what that book is. But experience is something that is completely different. And um, Well, you read the book and you might find a different, a different uh, you might get a different experience of reading the book than I would. Yeah, well, that's so what I'm we're saying having this, is these conversations every. <laughs> yes, every because days, it's, it? it is and what we're we saying. We're all having a different how, experience. Of he's it. talking about how does consciousness interact with the third dimension? And, uh, and he's saying that these are all different ways you can do it. And um, I, I, I agree. It's, it's the most important thing, I think, or perhaps one of the most important things in this chapter is to open up the potential to seeing it without blinkers. And that's what our discussions are about. Where are our blinkers? Where are our options to, to expand? And I, I mean, we've got a potential to expand it, but I don't think it's quite as easy as just they're, they're words until you experience it. But I've never... Not so, I can't say I've experienced what Spensky's experienced by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I still find him very, um, you know, by challenging our concept, we can see, this concept of time, we can see how fluid it is. We, before we started, we were chatting, time 
flies when you're having fun or time in the dental chair might drag. It is the same time, but what we're taking out of time, what we're taking away from that time experience is completely different in uh, in our interactions. So why couldn't we interact with the past? Well, we often do. Our memories, and our memory can change from exactly as you're saying, Pete. We can change our memory of the past. Yeah. It's interesting that you can do that, though, isn't it? That, that bridge is really into why anybody goes into things like this and does the things that are, that are done in this book. If it was just an intellectual exercise, there'd be about three people in the world interested in it. But it's because we can actually use it to, to positively impact our current environment when we, when we have access to these skills yeah. and practice them. It's fantastic yeah. to me. Uh, sometimes it does seem strange, you know, because I, it's hard to conceptualize why it works. So I, in the end, I just try to focus on the outcomes. I know the techniques and the outcomes. But there's something going on. There's something going on. And we are accessing something that Spensky brings us in. He, he puts into our focus that we've got to look at, isn't it? That something is happening there that's beyond the third, the third dimensional that's, experience that we that's have. That's the essence. That is the essence. Yeah. And he goes and talks about eternity, you know, and, and, and eternity yeah. is the infinity of time. And, um, Again, I think that's such a – it's almost the, the concept for the, for the unknowable for us here. You know, we use the word so easily. Well, that's eternity. We do, don't we? we? That's true. What does it really mean? What does eternity really, really mean? Well, funny you should ask that because he does address eternity. And, uh, and that's a good segue to get this conversation moving along into the chapter. And so he says his concept of eternity is, he comes back to Kant, one of his favorites. He says, attempting, this is what Kant says, attempting to look at time as an object. Kant says that it has one dimension. He imagines time as a line extending from the infinite future into the infinite past. Uh, of of one point on this line, we are conscious, and only one point. Then he says, and this point has no dimension because that which uh, the usual sense we call the present is kind of the recent past or the near future. But he said the true relation is that this sense of time is illusory because we're looking at it in a linear sense. But in fact, if we don't understand the concept that every point in time at perpendicular to that has every single possibility in that moment, so that each moment isn't a moment in a linear line, but it's also a moment in a perpendicular line which which has all possibilities, and that's what he's calling the concept of eternity. He says uh, this will be true in relation to our illusory perception of time, but in reality eternity is not the infinite dimension of time but the one perpendicular to time because if eternity exists, then every moment is eternal. So it's not just going from infinite past to infinite future, it's also going at each moment is infinite in itself, so that's sort of like all the all the possibilities are in that moment. That's his concept of eternity, and he, he believes that unless we understand that, we'll never understand time. That's I have no I have absolutely no problem accepting that. Absolutely none whatsoever. Well I'm going to be a little different from there. I, I'm going to say that I find it very hard to 
actually conceptualize. I mean, I understand. I, I certainly understand that this. What he's saying is that we've got huge flaws in our time conception. But what does it really mean to say it's perpendicular to this? You know, I think the problem is we're trying to understand something we really haven't got a concept of here with there. I, I added this. Well, I just the point I, of I, your, I, I, I can from sit the point down of and say straight line. The perpendicular is unknowable. That's 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 literally all he's saying. Yes. So, so, so I think he's just pointing out that we really don't have a handle on it, and and opening it. up our concept to say, look, you know, I mean, he's tried to put a handle on it, but I really don't grasp exactly what that handle would look like. He's used the analogy of perpendicular. He's used the anal- the, yeah. the the concept. Yeah. But they're they're words. But when I look behind the word, I find it very hard to put. Exactly well, in the space. What are you saying? I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to say is that we could get hidebound. I don't. I think even he struggled in this chapter. I think. Mm. I think even Aspensky has struggled in this chapter, and things are now looking much more convoluted than his conclusions would suggest. Which is why, right at the beginning, I said, "Can we go to that two those two lines and then move on?" You know. Consequently, extension in time is an extension into unknown space, and therefore time is the fourth dimension of space. I'm, I'm quite happy with that and move on, because all of these explanations of how we come to that thinking, I, I don't think, I think that they're overcomplicated, and we are also limited by language, which is what we say every week, but uh, it's the truth. And I find it very, very difficult to then visualize, because we're always trying to visualize this now, aren't we? And uh, I, I'm with you on that, Sue. Mm. I think... The way that the words are makes it difficult. Um, go out, step outside the words, and just understand the idea that there's. When he says it's perpendicular, he's just using an analogy of a, a three-dimensional line, well, a one-dimensional line, mm. not being aware of anything perpendicular to it, which it can't be. Well, um, and I think the concept is that. Well, and I think I, I could be speaking wrong when I say the three of us are agreeing. And Spensky, what he's saying, I believe first to look at is all the stuff that you've looked at well just step back from it and recognize that time is not as as um, measured and it's not as um, solid a concept as you have in the past looked at and I think that's a, a wonderful thing to say in this chapter and we're just saying there's something else out there and we're going to go have a look at it and opening your yeah. mind is the first step towards being able to go somewhere else. I'm good with that. Well, I think that's what the whole book is about, opening your mind. I think that's that's the concept in the book. I'm good with that too. I think I'm going to move on because I, we, we haven't got a lot of time and I do want to get to this surface tension concept of Hinton's. I just want to say one thing about that perpendicular. To me, it's saying at every moment there is an infinite number of possibilities that that moment could have. And that's the perpendicular. It's not you're not just in that one point on the line. It's up and down the the perpendicular to be anything, anything. And that's where consciousness is making that decision, like we talked about earlier. Anyway, that's my thought. I'm going to move on to this. Um, we're going to move quite a lot. He does he does talk about these two questions about you know um, that we did promise we'd talk about, but I think uh, we've already discussed them. Um, why does there exist uh, in the world illusory motion? And I think that's because we we talked about that being if we shine the torch on all the pallets, it looks like 
they're moving, but in fact they're stationary and it's our illusory torch moving that's that's the motion. And then why cannot consciousness extend that slit? And we've talked about being able to see um, outside of of our way of, of seeing things. It's like, uh, as you said, uh, climbing the mountain and being able to see the two towns that we talked about last time. It's that the consciousness would have to rise above that. And I think those those questions are, are discussed much more detail and better later on. But I want to talk about this concept of Hinton's, where he talks about maybe we are at the we are what we call the ether is a, a surface between higher dimensions. And so it says in one of his books, Hinton writes very interestingly about surface tensions. The relationship of a surface to a solid or a solid to a higher solid is one we find often in nature. The surface is nothing more or less than the relation between two things, two bodies touching each other. The surface is the relationship of one to the other. And then he says, if our space is is in the same correlation with higher space as is the surface to our space, then it may be that our space is really the surface that is the place of contact of two higher dimensional spaces. When I read that, I'm I'm visualising a macaroon. So you've got the the, the cream in the middle of the macaroon is like the surface between the two ends. And I I think that's what he's saying, that, that perhaps we aren't, one nor the other but we are the surface between the two and the surface between surface tension has a lot a lot different physical properties than the actual liquid the, the better analogy is the one that he uses is the droplet if you take the droplet of let's say water even in a vacuum it will tend to form a sphere you you place it on a a flat solid object and okay, the, the bottom of the, the water droplet will be will reflect its connection with the flat object that it sits on, but it will form a dome. This dome is known as the meniscus. What you can perceive of the water, even at that curve, even at that dome, the meniscus, is exactly the same, has exactly the same qualities and properties of water. What we can't see is what's acting upon the water to make its connection with the air with let's say the air is the different dimension because you know we're going from a liquid to a gas where where does the one end and the one begin the meniscus is a force that's defining the edge of those connections in other words the water does not appear to sort of meld into the 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 gas of of the air that surrounds it it appears to have a definite defined edge. If we went into um, the world of quanta, then there might not be a defined edge because the space between the particles, if they are indeed particles, but for the sake of argument, we'll say the particles that make up atoms, the space is so much greater than the actual particles themselves that you know there's, there's a case for seeing that whenever you touch anything, a little bit of you melts into that. If we can just get the frequencies to match, we should be able to walk through walls. But this meniscus in a liquid is a definite um, area of force. It's difficult to know what that force is that's causing that 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 dome shape, that, that's bringing the edge of it round, because even in a vacuum, they do the same things. 
if we look at gravity as having an effect, well, they still do the same things, no matter whether you're nearer an object with a higher gravitational force or, or that exerts a higher gravitational force or, or near to one that has a lesser gravitational force. Gravity is a very weak force anyway, and we should be looking at electromagnetism in this. But it's just a good example that there is this unknowable, the, the barrier is formed and it's this unknowable barrier. And it does seem to be a very definite stopping point. You know, I understand that when water is evaporating, there is there is this idea that, yes, maybe it will be evaporating and there will be a part of it that would appear to be gas. When you look at it closely, there isn't. It's either water or it's gas you know, or, or vapor. It, the, you cannot actually measure or see the bit where it's half and half. It's interesting. So, so, so if we have this definite thing between uh, dimensions, what I'm saying is that that, is, that gap is unknowable. We have a definite um, end to the third dimension and the fourth dimension, but there isn't a, there doesn't appear to be a barrier that we can actually measure or see or feel or touch. We're either one or the other. We go, we're in one or we're in another. So we've gone through a door. So Spensky is saying that the theory of Hinton is that we aren't in one or the other, that we're actually in the surface. He's saying that the ether... The interface. Yeah, the, the ether is the interface. So we are not in one dimension or another. We're sort of sandwiched in between. That's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking he's saying. I will um, I'll find the quote. I think while you're looking for that, I just want to say that the more we try to define, the more elusive it is. And I think that's the, the interesting part about science, isn't it? The more we come down to define, as you're saying, you know, what is this and what is that, the more illusory it comes at the finer point. Yeah, possibly so. Here's, here's his quote. It says, and it may um, well be that the laws of our universe are the surface tensions of a higher universe. If the surface be regarded as a medium lying between two bodies, then indeed it will have no weight but uh, be a powerful means of transmitting vibrations. Uh, moreover, it would be unlike any other substance and it would be impossible to get rid of it. And this is where you're saying even in a vacuum it would still be what it is. He says um, matter would pass freely through this medium. If we were looking at, you know, the, what what medium have we can we um, uh, put as a potentially that we are in the surface? He says matter would pass through this medium. Vibrations of this medium would tear asunder portions of matter, um, and involuntarily the conclusion would be drawn that this medium was not unlike any ordinary matter. Um, these would be very different properties to reconcile in one and the same substance. Now, is there anything in our experience which corresponds to this medium? And Hinton is saying, um, Hinton here expresses an unusually interesting thought and brings the idea of the ether uh, nearer to the, t the idea of time. Um, so he's sort of saying that the ether possesses these qualities of a surface and then... Somehow, he connects that with time. I'm, I'm in your hands. <laughs> what, what on earth is he talking about? <laughs> Drivel. Well, it, bear in mind the context of the time that they came from. The ether 
was was a term that was used to address this idea of because people were very very much in, interested in investigating spiritualism at that time and we had the great outpouring of spiritualism and we had Arthur Conan Doyle doing his best to debunk it but ending up a spiritualist um Arthur Conan Doyle, we should mention, isn't just a writer of great fiction. He came from a point of view of being an incredibly logical scientist. I mean, he was a mathematician and a logician uh, as well as a scientist, and he still came to this idea. But they use the ether to describe this unknowable element in which the spirits appear, from which the spirits appear. And I think you have to use, you have to see the context of that particular word. Um, ether as coming from that time that Hinton was working in, lived and worked in, and so does Espensky here. Um, but this ether is very specifically a word that was, um, it was, they decided to use it to describe something for which they had no explanation. We'll just call it the ether because that's an easier word than saying the unknowable. Which is, yeah, because we don't use that word anymore. We don't talk about no, it. No, it's, we it's don't, long we gone don't from talk about, Well, only if we're being making a, a, a joke about the situation. We just pull it out of the ether. Is, the, is that colloquial? Yes, yes, yes. We actually use Where'd it. Where'd you get that from? Computer, well, something the went into the ether. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we so, yeah, where the heck so has it gone think, in a computer? Yeah, it's gone into the ether. So, so what do you think he's saying? Because he's... He, he seems to feel, Spensky being he, seems to feel that Hinton is onto something here, that we, we, uh, this ether is some surface between higher well, dimensions, which would, here. would, to me, imply. Oh, God, you say what you think, you're thinking. Go on. Oh, as I was saying, it kind of even implies that we're not even in a three dimensional space. We're somewhere in limbo. Oh. That's what I'm feeling he's saying. And I, I'm not quite sure where he's going with that. Well, are we not the, it is the, because we live in the present, the only thing we can have experience of is the present moment, but the, in, the present moment is untouchable because the moment you try to catch, capture it, you're all, it's already the past. So what he's saying is our, our present is this unknowable barrier or whatever you want to call it, this transitional place between the past and the future, which if we've accepted what he said in the preceding pages in the chapter, um, that time is this fourth dimension and that the past exists, all potentialities in the past and all potentialities of the future exist, then what is the present? The present is this unknowable ether that is the transition between past and future, which is why we can't grasp it. That's what I, that's what I, get, that's what I get from it. Okay, that makes sense then. What is, yeah, yeah. From what he's saying, something to ponder. I, I'm, I'm not even sure Spensky is going to run with. Well, I know he doesn't run with that. No, he doesn't. I know he doesn't. But I think that I'm just going for this chapter. Yeah, that's right. So he's he's lobbed it in. He does love Hinton. So I suppose he's just he's, he's he's putting it forward as something to think about. I think. I think, and, and that's what this whole book is. This whole book is about thinking, isn't it? It's about opening your mind and viewing it at different concepts and seeing what is going to fit and what's not going to fit for you. Yeah, so he, he sort of ends the chapter on that thought. I think I think this chapter was quite pivotal to 
the next few chapters in the sense that he's kind of giving a pre he's jumping the gun he talks about a lot of things that he hasn't really built a, a scaffold to explain he's putting a lot of concepts in i should say that haven't really got a foundation that he's presented but he does present that foundation i think in the next few chapters as to looking at different dimensions which are, to me make this chapter make a little bit more sense but I think at the end of the day, time, his concept of time has taken a very interesting viewpoint because I never really, never really thought about the past as being something that still has possibilities. And, and I think, Pete, your, your point where you talked about the hypnosis and, and being able to re-pull a different past just highlights that the, the truth of that or the, the possibility of that. I think this, yeah, I, I like the way. Well, those are areas where you can see it happen. Yeah, and I think it brings, we, we talked about right at the beginning of this whole podcast, you know, what's the point? We live in this three-dimensional world. What's the point of knowing about anything else unless we can do something with it? And we're starting to see what we can do with it. There it is. There's your starting point. And, uh, and, and Espensky gets very, becomes very interesting as we go on where he's Well, yeah, to they do. And, you know, mate. I just come in there, Alice, because you and I work with manifestation and we teach it. We, we, you know, we're going to yeah. be out on the road doing, doing road shows about this at all. And we know that everything about that is about changing your mindset and changing your belief set and changing the way you think. That's exactly the same thing. You go back to your past, you take the beliefs that you picked up in the past yeah. and you change them. You're not changing them in the present. No, you're changing them in the past and that changes the whole domino of events that happen. That change, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's... it's and, and so, and, so there, is a very practic, there is a very practical aspect to, to learning this stuff. Now, you and I will teach it in a much simpler and much more accessible form than this. Um, I mean, this this guy is is talking to scientists. <laughs> I mean, really. And he's a mathematician. And he is and, a mathematician. And I, but I think he does, yeah. But I think he's he's he does it justice. He does he does bring oh, in yeah, some very uh, mind boggling yet very plausible concepts. Oh, I love it. I, I think it's great. I'll just say I'll just say before before we we bring this to a conclusion. I particularly like in the the apocalypse um, of St. John the Divine, where the angel says, and there shall be time no longer. I can't wait. <laughs> it's just too <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the apocalypse. <laughs> or at least at least the time no longer bit. <laughs> yeah. Ooh, I could do with that. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Well, thanks, guys, for, for joining joining me today i've really enjoyed the the discussion that we've had today and uh we've wrapped up chapter four it's taken us two podcasts but we're 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 through it and we're on to chapter five next time it's been a pleasure it's been fantastic wonderbar see you soon thank you ali and thanks for joining us we look forward to your company for chapter five